Texas Monthly. Okay. Court reporter. All right. So let's uh, let's let's go to the beginning of the Thomas Brown case. It's a hell of a, it's a hell of a case. Sixty-one-year-old Philip Klein is the owner of a private investigative firm in the southeast Texas town of Nederland, about an hour east of Houston. He's one of the most colorful characters I've ever come across. He's a big, imposing man, six feet, six inches tall, 230 pounds, and he's brimming with confidence. He even looks like he could have stepped straight out of a TV detective show. During one of our phone interviews, he actually told me that he's often compared to Ray Donovan, the main character in the Showtime television series, who's a fixer for a big-time law firm. When Tom's mother, Penny, first called Klein's office, she reached his daughter, Caroline Gear. Caroline works for her dad. She's one of his investigators. So, Caroline was dealing with the, uh, the family, uh, and she called me in on Sunday afternoon, and she said, hey, uh, we got a situation brewing up in Canadian Texas. I said, where the hell is that? She goes, it's up in way North Texas, last county before you hit Oklahoma. I said, okay. How did she even know who you were? She apparently had heard of me before and saw cases that I'd done covered by media. Uh, you know, she did her research. And the reason she called here was she was very unhappy with the way the direction of the case was going. And that was that weekend. That was that weekend. She so Wednesday could, night he disappears. Right. They can't find him for a couple of days, right. and she calls over the weekend. Right. So I talked to her. I said, Penny, that's Philip Klein. How are you? She goes, I've heard about you. I've heard a lot about you. Everybody knows in Texas you're the go-to guy. I said, okay, okay. What is the sheriff's department telling you? Because I'm not going to jump in somebody's backyard. If it's being investigated properly, it's being done by <laughs> professional law enforcement, I'm not... I usually don't get involved. So she told me the story. I listened to it. I said, okay, Penny, has Caroline talked to you about how much it's going to cost? Klein charges between $25,000 and $75,000 to find a missing person. Neither Klein nor Penny would tell me how much she paid. She said, well, why are you the money today? And Caroline's already sent in a contract over to us. We need you up here. Uh, these people don't know what they're doing, and they're saying stuff that is off the wall. And I said, well, okay. So I hung up the phone, and Caroline walks in my office right there, stood right there, and goes, Jesus, they've already transferred the money to us. I said, are you kidding me? You know, usually it takes a week or two or some negotiating or something. They sh no skin underneath their feet. So I said, okay, let's go. So uh, I went home, packed a couple of bags, and got in the car, drove all night, and got up there the next morning. No one yet knew it, but Klein's arrival in Canadian was about to split the tight-knit town apart, sparking a rivalry between the out-of-town private investigator and the hometown sheriff. I'm Skip Hollinsworth. From Texas Monthly, this is Tom Brown's Body, Episode 3. Evil has come to Canadian Texas. When Klein arrived in Canadian, seven days after Tom went missing, he drove straight to Penny's home. What's your impression of the family? You know, the people of West Texas are a different breed. They're very laid back. 
they're very methodical, they're very honest, they're very God-fearing people. I mean, you can go up there for a week and then come back down here or Houston or Austin. It's two different worlds. It's just two different worlds. So when I first met them, I was very impressed with them. Klein then paid a visit to the Hemphill County Sheriff's Department, where he met Sheriff Nathan Lewis. To put it mildly, Klein was not impressed. Uh, and I, I saw him as an amateur from the minute I met him. The time I shook his hand, I was like, oh God, here we go. Uh, very arrogant, GQ-ish. Uh, everybody in, you know, wore professional uniforms, but him, he wore golf shirts and a, uh, golf pullovers that said, you know, um, Hill County Sheriff and uh, wore a cowboy hat and was had the fuzzy beard, you know, not not the full beard, but the fuzzy beard, you know, where you, you know, very GQ. And we were like, you know, what? Uh, when I first saw him, I thought, my God, this is the sheriff. I deal with the sheriffs all over the state of Texas. I consult with a lot of sheriffs all over the state of Texas. I was kind of in shock. I kind of went, what the hell? Nathan was very demure to me. Uh, I said, please do your research on myself and my firm. We do this all over the United States and around the world. Uh, if you have any uh, uh, issues with me, please pick up the phone. I don't want to work in your backyard. Uh, and he kind of laughed. Sheriff Lewis told me he did kind of laugh when he first met Klein. He thought the private investigator was nothing more than a showboat. Drove his black suburban lights on it, pulls up walks in the office and says, Penny's hired me to investigate this case, and I'm the biggest and baddest, and I've solved a thousand cases. Okay. Uh, he was very full of himself. Uh, he said that there was nothing he couldn't do. He said that he was not going to stop until he found Tom. That's really all, all we talked about was how good he was. Klein told me he asked Sheriff Lewis what he knew about Tom. According to Klein, Lewis unloaded. He's, I think he's gay. I think he has a fetish of wearing adult diapers and peeing in them. Uh, and uh, I was like, okay, that's a little strange, but, you know, okay. This is on your first visit. This is on my first visit to the sheriff. The profile that I got was, this is a runaway, blow it off, forget it. You don't even need to be here. You're wasting your time. You're wasting these people's money, but, you know, whatever. We're here if you need to talk to us. Lewis denies that he ever talked about Tom this way, but he did acknowledge that he and his deputy suspected that Tom had skipped town. He let Klein look over the case file. Klein took some notes. Then he headed out to begin interviewing Tom's friends, recording his conversations as he went. Hello. Hi, my name's Phil Klein. I'm an investigator. Okay. How are you today? Is Michael home? No, he's not. He went to all subs. Where are you from? He went to, I'm, I'm from I'm from in Texas. I'm a private security investigator. I'm assigned to the Brown disappearance. Okay. Is there any way we can get him up here? I can visit with him with you guys. Um. Hold on. Hold on a second. I'm a child rescue specialist. Okay. Okay. So, uh, are you with any law enforcement agency? I am in private security, um, and we assist through child rescue network, local law enforcement from time to time, and I'm not representing any law enforcement. Okay. I'm representing the family. Okay, hold on just a second. Okay. This is Klein at Michael Castletine's house. Michael, you'll remember, was one of the three friends who went cruising with Tom on Thanksgiving Eve. You can come in. Thank you. 
Thank you for having me in your home. You're welcome. Hi. I'm Philip Klein. Philip Klein. Nice to meet you. I'll give you my card here. You may have a seat. Thank you. Michael probably home in just a Okay. Love that uh, bench right there. Where'd you guys get that? Hi, how are you? I'm Philip Klein. I'm senior investigator at KIC Texas and also with Child Rescue Network. We're, uh, Sorry, I'm gonna go put them in the backyard. Oh, sure. Hold on just a second. Sorry. No, no problem. Now, Michael's 18 years old. He is. Yes, and he can decide whether he wants to. He can. Talk or not. So that is true. As he did whenever he met someone new. Klein filled in the Castletine family on his credentials. Well, I found people in Mexico. I found people in Malaysia. I found people in... What about anyone this young? This is Michael, by the way. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know you do child, but I'm saying like an adult that's 18. Two 15, a 15-year-old 15 ran away with her softball coach, and they got a job on a cruise ship down in the Greek islands. Excuse me, I was able to find them. I mean, you know, I've been able to find, uh, I guess, the one everybody watched me on Dateline on was the one with Patrick McDermott, Olivia Newton-John's missing. Yeah. That I was me. That. Yeah, really? Yeah. Well, then That was my, my, me and my got, team. Like you said, you got 85%? We're, we're 84, 85%. Yeah. yeah, you're only as good yeah. as your next case. So. Yeah. Klein also took the time to explain his interviewing technique. And now listen to me. Before you start talking, I'm a profiler. Okay. Right. The way we work is we paint a picture. Right. Okay. So we get a little red over here, a little blue over here, a little green over here. Then we paint this picture, and then we step back and look at the picture, and we can kind of know what we're looking at. So paint me a picture of Tom. Um, I don't know. He was funny. I mean, I know he had. That's what everybody says. Yeah, He's a funny guy. He was funny. I mean, he always seemed he was like exuberant, like loud-ish. Did he have any enemies in town? No, not that I can think of. No one that I ever knew disliked Tom. Everybody liked him. Yeah. I got asked the question, did, did, did he use a little weed? Did he use any meth? Did he use any, what he, what he... He would, he's drinking maybe four times in his life. Okay. He would never smoke or do anything like that. As Klein conducts his interviews, you can hear him trying to piece together a profile of Tom. Here he is talking to Caleb King, another one of the friends who was with Tom on Thanksgiving Eve. Well, Your dad's a state representative. Yes. Is he enjoying it? Yeah, he likes it a lot. Good. Yeah, it's a fun time down there. <laughs> it can become high pressure too. Oh, it is. So what I want to try to do is I want to try to, I, want, I just want to hear from you. Tell me about Tom. When did you guys first meet or have y'all been lifelong friends or what do we got? Well, I mean, I've known Tom since probably second grade when he moved here. So let's get to um, senior year. We get into our senior year. How's he doing? I mean, he's elected class president. Right. I mean, yeah. What's that all about? He, I heard uh, he gave a good speech. Is that right mm -hmm. or something? Oh, yeah. Killed it? Yeah. That's what everybody says. All your friends say, boy, he got up there and he killed it. Mm -hmm. He did. How was his speech? Tell me about it. It was really just funny. And that's why funny. people voted for him. Everybody said he was there. They were on the floor laughing. Oh, yeah. It was hilarious. But tell me about uh, with girls. Did he, was he attracted to girls, do you think? Oh, yeah. He was extremely attracted to girls. I, I'm, I'm, well, let me just ask you flat out. Is he heterosexual, or do you think he had homosexual tendencies? No, I never thought that. And here is Klein talking by phone to Christian Webb, the third of Tom's friends who went cruising with him the night he disappeared. When Klein called her, Christian was already back at Oklahoma State. That day she was on her way to the football game, where she would be playing her piccolo in the marching band. 
Yes, sir. I was wondering if you had a couple of minutes I could visit with you. Yes, sir. Um, I am about to go into a football game right now. Um, let me try and find a quiet place. Okay, very good. Klein asked her about the last moments she and Tom spent together on Thanksgiving Eve. Um, you know, he seemed really happy. Uh, everything seemed fine. And, you know, we drove around and listened to music until about 11, and I got tired of driving. And so we went and we sat in the parking lot for about 30 minutes until I had to go home. Okay, about 11.30? Yes, sir. Okay. So he so that night, he was just happy-go-lucky. Nothing was wrong. He was he, Everything was good. Take, take me from there. So when you dropped him off, what did he say he was going to do? Um, I figured he was going home. He didn't say what he was going to do. And, you know, we'd made plans to hang out the rest of the week. He was going to come over to my house on Thanksgiving and hang out with my family. Right. Um, he, and we were, he was going to come visit me in college. We'd made plans to do that over the spring. Right. I was going to knock. Hi, <laughs> sir. Hi, Philip Klein. What's your name? Ray's Pink. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Okay. Finally, Klein dropped in on Tom's ex-girlfriend, Sage Pennington, and her family. Well, I mean, you know, I'm up over 1,100 cases now, and I'm, I know what I'm doing, and I know how it manifests itself, and I can write books after books after books on this crap now, but... I, I, Sage told Klein that she had met Tom in theater class. They started going out when she was a senior, and he was a junior. Um, is he the kind of guy that uh, gives people little gifts? Like, would he ever give you a little gift, or...? I mean, he gave me a necklace, and then he gave me, like, a stuffed corgi because he knows I, like, I love corgis, but that was, ever, that was, like, the only thing. That says a lot. You know, he was trying to give you something he knew you liked. And then Klein switched gears. So let's talk a little bit about, um, I want to go to his dark side. Tell me all about his dark side. I mean, I never, I really don't know. I just know, so he's always kind of, like, a fetish, I guess, but... I always figured it's... Slow down. Sorry. This is very important. Yeah. So, let me hear about this fetish. You might remember that Sage had been the first person to tell a sheriff's deputy that Tom liked wearing adult diapers. When Klein looked through the sheriff's case file on Tom, he had read her statement. Okay, so back up. Let me hear a little bit about the diapers. Don't be shy. Did you ever catch him wearing diapers? No. Okay. Did you think that was weird when he said to you, well, I like to wear diapers? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I thought it was weird and not appropriate for the age. Yeah. And did you tell him that? Or did you just go, oh, jeez? No. no, I didn't tell him because he already felt so bad about it. I didn't want to, like, he already felt like a freak. I didn't want to make him feel more bad about himself. At the time, Sage and just a couple of other girls who were close to Tom seemed to be the only people in town who knew anything about Tom's alleged fetish. Christian Webb told me Tom opened up to her about it in the summer of 2016, just before she headed off to college. I believe that it was something we texted about, if I recall correctly. Did he try to explain why he wanted to wear a diaper? He just told me repeatedly that it's, he just really liked it um, and it gave him pleasure. Did it scare you? Um, it had me a little concerned, but a lot of these things are kind of natural, um, and people can't help them. Um, and I mean, if he was kind of handling it in a healthy way, 
then it, it didn't really bother me. When I sat down with Tom's mom, Penny, his older brother, Tucker, and his stepfather, Chris, they said they were stunned when Sheriff Lewis first brought up Tom wearing diapers. They did acknowledge that they had once caught Tom wearing them, but it was just once, they said. And that was back when he was in middle school. I have nephews that were little and they were still in diapers. And so then he would try to wear their diapers and then he would wear them, I guess, kind of off and on for a while. And then we caught him with them. And then to my knowledge, he stopped. There was nothing else ever about it again. There were no diapers anywhere. I mean, that had been a non-issue for several years. Lewis, however, said he had an obligation to look into Tom's life. When I was told about Tom's fetish with uh, wearing diapers, that just opened up a, a whole new thing in wondering, what are we dealing with here? I just knew that we had to put him under a microscope. I had never dealt with a missing person before. I've never taken on a lead role at that level. Uh, it's never easy to put somebody under a microscope to, to figure out their things, you know, that they hide or don't want people to, to find out. You know, it's a hard thing to do. And it was even harder to share things like this with the family or the mother, you know, things that we had found out or, or things that we had found out that we needed more answers to. It led Lewis to wonder whether Tom had been engaging in any other secret behaviors. I mean, I want to call them sick and weird. Um, things that he was involved in and what he was doing. But everyone who knew Tom said it was absurd to believe that he was sick or that he was leading a secret life. When I called Sage, she said that as far as she knew, Tom had only worn diapers a handful of times. What were things you said to him? Uh, well, I would just tell me you need probably talk to somebody professional, go to your parents about it. Also, that God loves you. You're not a freak. You don't need to be ashamed of yourself. Everybody has their battles um, that you can overcome. Sage insisted that Tom was a regular guy, just like any other Canadian boy. He just happened to struggle with typical teenage insecurities in his own way. When Tom and Sage broke up in November 2016, Sage said he was characteristically sweet. Sage was already a freshman at West Texas A&M, and Tom told her he planned to attend Oklahoma State the following year, which would only increase the distance between them. He told her he hoped she would find a good guy to be her next boyfriend. Sage was still so fond of Tom that she wrote him a lovely goodbye letter that read, in part, I know God will bless both of us. On November 22, 2016, the day before Tom disappeared, Tom and Sage actually saw one another at a Canadian high school basketball game. She was in town for Thanksgiving. They didn't speak that night. They happened to be sitting on opposite sides of the gym. But Tom later texted Sage, saying that he was sad and that he felt like a loser. I'm sad too, Sage texted back. I miss you a lot, and you are not a loser. She texted him again the next night, Thanksgiving Eve. Because from knowing him and just some of the issues he faced and stuff, I knew he was struggling, and so I checked on him. But by then, Tom's phone had been turned off, and he never responded.
If Sheriff Lewis had developed certain suspicions about Tom's disappearance, private investigator Philip Klein began coming to very different conclusions. As Klein made his rounds, he asked the teenagers he interviewed if they could imagine Tom attempting suicide. Here's Klein with Michael Castletine. He ever threatened to kill himself? Um, no. He ever talked suicide? I mean, I heard him say it. I'll kill myself, but that wasn't like a joking way. Like people say that, so I don't know if you. I get it, but he didn't ever say to you, man. Not seriously. I just, I'm done. He I'm never done. said anything like that seriously to me. Okay. Tom's friend Christian said suicide didn't make much sense to her either. After all, she and Tom had made plans for him to come over to her house on Thanksgiving Day. And that's something else that stood out to me, um, and kind of makes me think that he didn't commit suicide, is because. Typically, if you plan to commit suicide, then you don't make plans for the following day. Klein began telling Tom's friends that he too was skeptical Tom had taken his own life. For one thing, Tom's body had not been found. Klein said that's rare in cases of suicide. If you're going to kill yourself as a teenager, you want your body found. This has to be a splash. This has to be a big thing. Remember, he's big into drama. And if Tom was contemplating suicide, Klein asked why he would carry so many things with him after parking his Durango. Um, people that are going to kill themselves don't carry their laptops, their wallet, and their phone, and their, and their so, you know, I don't think it's a suicide. I really don't. <laughs> Klein said the more he thought about it, the more he suspected that a crime had been committed. Tom had been kidnapped, maybe even murdered. Here he is talking to Sage. Have you ever heard of the website Backpage? No. Never heard of any of those? No. Those are very black sites. You can get in a lot of trouble there. It's the internet. It's not the internet. It's the internet. Do a couple of clicks and it tends you to a world that sexual fantasies, sexual fetishes, trading boys for boys, girls for girls, swingers, the whole bit. It's all there. Prostitutes, it's all there. And the kids have figured it out. And some very nefarious characters hang out in there. I mean, they're killers. They, they prey on people. And then you hook up with them. They say, okay, I'll come pick you up at midnight. Yeah. Just be over here on the corner. And they come pick you up. But you never come home. Yeah. And they kill you. We're looking at the possibility that there was a third party out there that he was keeping a relationship with on either Backpage or one of the other Instagram, fake profile on Facebook. Klein also began floating another theory when he talked to Tom's friends. He suggested that Tom might have encountered someone he knew just before midnight on Thanksgiving Eve. According to Klein, that person might have murdered Tom, driven Tom's Durango to an unknown area to dump his body, then parked the vehicle at the water treatment plant and walked back into town. That would mean the killer was probably still living among them in Canadian. Here's Klein talking to Caleb King. There's bad people out in the world. Son, there's bad places out there and bad people. You've got to be on your toes at all times. Makes you want to get over there to the church and get on your knees and say a few words, right? Right. I got you. I got you. Welcome to my world. I do this for a living. You won't meet guys like me very often. I pray you don't. We live in a very dark world. Worse than? Worse than you'd ever dream. 
we've seen it all. And then the phone rings, and we see one more. And that's the gospel. Evil has come to Canadian Texas. Klein was so convinced there was a crime to be solved that he brought in another private investigator to help him with the case. And that was? Jay Holmes. And so How do you spell her last name? H-O-L-M-E-S, like Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> you can't make this shit up. Holmes, who's based outside of Atlanta, Georgia, specializes in conducting interviews. She has thick blonde hair and a soft southern drawl. She's the perfect counterpoint to Klein's TV detective act. She arrived in Canadian on New Year's Eve in 2016, about six weeks after Tom disappeared. That night, she and Klein tried to squeeze some information out of members of the Wildcats high school football team. They met the players at their favorite hangout, the high school football stadium parking lot. How many of you guys were on the football team? <laughs> Name all someone that's not. Swing you. a cat. Everybody. Okay, all of you. So tell me, I know us old folks, we get on Facebook. How do y'all communicate social media-wise? Do y'all get on any sites like Kick or anything like that? No, not I Kick, don't. no. No? That's Tinder? Uh, no, I was just I'm kidding, y'all. Y'all know I was just kidding, right? I'm not that desperate. I used to. Oh, God dang it. I mean, is there, is there any, like, I mean, we're, just keep in mind, you know, we don't, we're not going to judge anybody, but we're just wanting to know, is there any kind of underground network around here that people do things on the, on the dark side? Underground or? network. Is there any kind of underground network in this community where people like, could get on the dark side of things? Just like, like drugs mean? or what? Like well, well anything. Uh, that may be so. There's drugs town. everywhere. Meeting up with drugs, people. Drugs, sex, rock and roll. I mean, That's you know, right. come on. <laughs> yeah. Meeting up with people. No. Any, there's, not, like, there's not like prostitutes and stuff like that. No, or, you know. Somebody any. said some truckers come through town and get, make people a little nervous every once in a while. Is that true? A little bit. Not that oh, I know, right? Okay. We're all guys here, right? Right. Hold your ears. <laughs> you ever into any weird shit? No, not that I know of. No? Come on. He didn't hang out with like sketchy people. He hung out with cool people that we all talked to. You smoke any dope? No, I've never seen dope on him. What about drinking? Um, now come on now. I don't know. I don't know if he was a drunk. Well, we heard about some bonfires out there north um, of the city and everybody would drink a couple of beers and you know. Yeah. Nothing big, a couple of beers. Right. Well, you, do you ever see him do that? I've never gone out there, sir. Okay. I wouldn't, see him I wouldn't know. <laughs> did he have any enemies you know of? Who, Tom? Yeah. No. Oh, I loved Tom. Like, everyone loved him. He was great. Everybody loved Tom? Yeah. yeah. So nobody bullied him. He didn't bully anybody. Uh, know. None of that. Okay. Nobody wanted to whip his ass for uh, yeah, getting was, out of football? We no. No, We accepted it. Like, it was fine. It was, it was just like, like, if anyone quits, it's like, it's your decision, it's your you know? Decision, like, yeah. As Holmes helped Klein interview people all over town, Sheriff Lewis was also getting some help. He'd called an FBI agent from Amarillo and a Texas Ranger from the nearby town of Pampa to come to Canadian and sift through the case file. The officers were struck by a statement that one of Tom's high school friends, Macy Patterson, had given to a sheriff's deputy. Macy said that she and Tom had talked about how easy it would be to disappear from Canadian as long as they didn't use a cell phone, credit cards, or anything else that was traceable. They could sneak out of Canadian and never be found. 
Maybe, Lewis and the officer speculated, that's exactly what Tom had done. He had taken off to start a new life. We talked about jumping trains. We talked about, you know, going that area, the train goes that area. We talked about jumping trains. We talked about the slow moving trains that go through here. And he might have hitched a ride from a truck driver. The lawman also considered the possibility that Tom had arranged for someone to show up in Canadian and pick him up. The officers asked Penny, her husband Chris, and Tom's father Kelly to come to the sheriff's department. According to Penny, the Texas Ranger laid out what he thought had happened. He just said that, well, I really haven't looked through all of the investigation, but, you know, from what they're telling me, you know, I think that your son just ran off. Um, he's gay, uh, homosexual. He's found this man, this older man that he's hooked up with. And so he's just off with him somewhere. And, um, you know, the great news is, is that he's alive. And when he wants to talk to you again, he'll pick up a phone and call you. Um, that was basically it. It was kind of like, your son's a freak. I mean, they didn't use that word, but basically what they were saying is, your son is a freak. He's gone off and joined the circus. He's alive. He'll show back up when he's ready. I asked him, so where did you get this? Well, you know, friends and, you know, and I'm like, well, what friends? Well, we can't tell you. And I said, well, funny to me, I've talked to a lot of kids too. I haven't had any kids tell me that he ran away or that he was gay. Well, but the kids lie to you. Okay. I said, well, I, I don't have a teacher, a coach, a kid. Um, a pastor, a youth pastor. I don't have anybody who has told me that Thomas is gay. Lewis was at that meeting, and he told me he doesn't remember Tom's sexuality being discussed at all. And he said that Penny is exaggerating, that the officer only brought up the possibility that Tom might have left Canadian with another man. I really think that conversation was more of a discussion conversation versus the, uh, you know, him just saying this is what happened. You know, saying, hey, you know, he could have got in with somebody. He could have got in with an older man. I remember that conversation. Nevertheless, it wasn't long after that meeting that Lewis decided to go public with the runaway theory. What kind of a show is this? Well, it's interesting, fun, and local. Chris and Ken, weekday mornings. It's as American as apple pie. On 98.3 KXDJ. In January 2017... The sheriff appeared on Chris Samples' radio talk show, which is broadcast out of the nearby town of Perryton. Samples is sort of like the town crier of the northeastern panhandle. Welcome into the final hour of the program, quarter after nine with Chris Samples, here on The Information Leader, the region's number one rated adult radio station by a ton, from Wheeler to Stratford, from near Amarillo all the way to Beaver, Oklahoma. By this point, Tom's disappearance was the biggest story in the panhandle, and Samples gave Lewis a full 20 minutes, without commercial interruption, to talk about the case. I have been hoping and praying that all of a sudden we'll find a young man. Is there any reason to believe that that kind of a scenario might be remotely possible? Chris, it's absolutely possible. So last week what we did, we set everything down, put everything out on the table, had a conference, if you will, and just went over everything. We had the family come in. We visited with them. We told them where we're at, what we're doing, what we're looking through. So what that entailed was looking over everything that we have found through the young man's home, through his vehicle, 
talking to friends, close confidants. And everything that we have learned through this investigation, Chris, has led us to believe, we are quite positive, us and also the, the DPS officials and the rangers, that Mr. Brown left on his own. We have interviewed a mass number of people. What we are coming up with by these interviews is going back and determining that the young man did leave voluntarily. We have not found anything at this point on giving us a direction of who he left with. So, no, we have no idea on somebody that helped him out. But, yes, somebody did help him out. Somebody does know where Mr. Brown is, absolutely. What kind of a challenge is it, Sheriff, to orchestrate this kind of a what has become now maybe even a national search when you say, okay, we've got a missing person here who has evidently left on their own free will. What does it take for a sheriff's department in Canadian Texas to tap in to that national network because there are thousands of missing people out there? Chris, it does. It happens every day. It's a tragedy every day that, that somebody does go missing, whether it's on their own account voluntarily or against their will. People go missing every day, and it's horrible, and it's something that nobody should have to go through at all. We are not going to stop looking for him. We're not going to stop doing the things that we're doing here. The tragedy thing about it is he's a high school senior, and he's a son. Mm-hmm. He's a brother. He's a friend of the community. And so we're going to do everything and still do everything we can to locate him and bring him home. At this point, Philip Klein had offered no evidence to back his theory that Tom had been killed. And Sheriff Lewis had provided no evidence to back his theory that Tom had run away. But interest in the case continued to surge across the region. The owner of Toot and Totem, a convenience store chain, announced a $5,000 reward to the first person who provided information leading to Tom's return or recovery. Predictably, phone calls flooded the sheriff's department. Someone called to say he had seen Tom at a Chicken Express in Amarillo. Someone else claimed to have spotted Tom at a coffee shop in Clovis, New Mexico. Of course, none of the tips panned out. As the weeks passed, there was no sign of Tom at all. No cell phone pings, no texts, no digital footprint, no physical evidence. Tom, it seemed, had become a ghost. On February 1st, 2017, a little more than two months after Tom disappeared, a prayer vigil was held at the Canadian High School gym. Around 100 townspeople were there, packed together at center court. Everyone received a pebble with the inscription, just make it home on one side and Tom's name on the other. They sang hymns and they listened to a sermon delivered by the youth pastor from the Methodist church. Our innocence is lost, he said. Tom is not with us. But the day after the service, a new rumor began to spread through Canadian. It was the first big break in the case since the night Tom disappeared. Four miles east of town, on a lonely farm-to-market road, someone had found Tom's backpack. Next week on Tom Brown's Body. We get a tip from a deputy the backpack from the car has been found. Where was it found? 
6.7 miles to the left on Lake Marvin Road. We're like, holy shit. Tom Brown's Body is a Texas Monthly production. Executive producer is Megan Kreit. Produced and engineered by Brian Standifer, who also wrote the music. J.K. Nickel is our editor, and Paul Knight is our fact checker. Audio assistants are Sean Cronin and Emma Jane Hopper. Our theme music is No Hard Feelings by the Avid Brothers. I'm your writer and host, Skip Hollinsworth. If you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. See y'all next week.